All right, good morning, Four Oaks. I'm Pastor Paul, if we don't know each other, so glad that you are here worshiping with us. I'm gonna invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter nine. You know, as we're moving into the fall, theoretically, right, as we keep an eye on the, the gulf out there, <clears throat> I'm sure that many of you use this summer to catch up on your favorite TV shows, series, movies, et cetera, et cetera. And if so, we all know that there are two and only two kinds of people in this world, right? Those who watch episodes one at a time as they come available. And for those of you who do it the correct way, right, where you binge them all at once. Now, when we are going through a book of the Bible together like we are with Matthew, let's remember um, that Matthew in a sense, dropped all these episodes at once. They were written as a collective whole, a narrative, a biography to, to be absorbed sort of in one sitting. But because we can't preach through the whole thing at one time, we take them, in a sense, episode by episode, week to week. Which means that sometimes we come to the end of an episode, like last week, and we're left with this sort of anticipation of what's happening, where is this going, what happens next, how is this going to, to play itself out. And that's where we were last week because we saw that for the first time, not only does Jesus heal someone, he's been doing that all through Matthew, but not only does Jesus heal this paralytic, but he in fact goes on to forgive him his sins. It's not just a physical healing that Matthew shows us, it's a, it's a spiritual healing. And by the way, this is Matthew's reminder to us that we, when it comes to Jesus, it's all or nothing. There, there's not a sense when we can say, well, you know, Pastor Paul, I, I, you know, I, I admire Jesus and his teachings and his, his moral example. And I would love to, to have my kids kind of like be kind of like Jesus, but not a whole lot like him, right? Not to be a Jesus freak or something like that. See, Jesus is not just a philosopher or a soothsayer. He, in fact, presents himself as the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the only one who has the authority to forgive sins. And in that way, it's all or nothing. There is no squishy middle for Matthew in this gospel. But we ended last week by Jesus showing that he and he alone has the authority to forgive sins, which I think left a lot of questions unanswered if we're sort of paying attention here. For, for, for example, if Jesus can forgive sins, Pastor Paul, then whose sins are forgiven exactly? And, and how are those sins forgiven? And are you saying that, that, that Jesus can forgive any sins, all sins of anyone? Those are the sorts of, of, of questions that press themselves forward because understand, those are not academic questions. Those are not theoretical questions for us. All of us bring in here this morning some sort of paradigm, the way that we think about who we are and the lives we've lived and what we've done and the decisions we make. And this is far from theoretical. It was far from theoretical for Matthew. And what we're going to find out this morning is that autobiographically, Matthew tells us his own story. Just as we sang this morning, this is my story, this is my song, 
This is Matthew's story. This is Matthew's song. And we're going to be in Matthew 9, verses 9 through 13. And if you're able, I'm going to invite you to stand as we read God's word together. Matthew 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray. Father, to understand you and to understand what you offer through your son Jesus, we need to understand not just who he is, but we need to understand who we are. And so, Father, I pray that you would lift the blinders this morning that we could see maybe for the first time for some of us just who we are and that the only solution to discovering who we are is knowing you and who you are. So Lord, we ask for your help this morning. Open your word through the power of your spirit. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. You may take your seats. Talking about movies and films, you know, a lot of movies and films these days have Easter eggs. And, and parents or grandparents, if you don't know, you don't know. But ask your, ask your kids, right? So, so an Easter egg is, is, if I can pontificate here for a second, something strategically, discreetly placed in a scene that's sort of a, an inside joke or a nod or a salute to another film or to someone famous. And you have to kind of look for them and they kind of be discreet. For example, you know, Alfred Hitchcock, for, in all of his movies, he placed himself strategically in the movie. That, he was the Easter egg. He looked kind of like an Easter egg, if you think about it. Um, if, if, and I, that wasn't in the notes. That just like came like immediately. Of course, Oliver Stone tried the same thing, but he is no Alfred Hitchcock, I, I can assure you. Well, Matthew inserts an Easter egg in here, and it's himself. It's his own conversion. This is his narrative. And he does that in a discreet way, but in a way that I think highlights two crucial things that we're going to see in this passage. And these are going to be our, our two points. And here they are. They're very simple. Number one, anyone can be forgiven. That's the first thing. Anyone can be forgiven. But number two, and this goes right along with that, but everyone needs to be forgiven. So it's very true. Anyone can be forgiven, but everyone needs forgiveness. And so that's the title of the sermon this morning. Anyone and everyone. So let's dig in. Anyone can be forgiven. Let's look at verse 9. It says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. Now, it's not an exaggeration. And if you've been around church for a long time, you've probably heard a lot of sermons about how nasty tax collectors were and those sorts of things, and, and it's true. 
And it's not an exaggeration, though, to say that Matthew most certainly probably was the most unpopular, despised man in the whole city of Capernaum. And that's saying something, right? So when the Romans came in to conquer a territory, and as they did so, and, and they left little garrisons of soldiers in these occupied territories, they, of course, wanted to exact taxes from the locals. What's the use of having occupied territory if you can't collect some taxes, right? Of course, the Romans didn't know the culture, didn't know the language, didn't know the geography. So they would recruit locals like Matthew to do their dirty work. These would be the guys who would collect the taxes on almost any and everything. And of course, taking a little bit or a whole lot of it for themselves. And Rome would just be the muscle, right? They'd be the tough guys. They would be the enforcers. And you can imagine that tax collectors and those like them were the most despised of citizens. They were ostracized. They were hated. They were social outcasts. No one would have wanted anything to do with them, and they most certainly were cut off from their families. They were disowned. Now, one of the things that you need to know about tax collectors as well is that they weren't just social outcasts, they were religious outcasts. Did you know that tax collectors weren't allowed to go to church? They weren't allowed to go to the synagogue. They weren't allowed to go to the temple to offer sacrifices. They were considered ritually unclean, impure. And so when you think about that sort of life that Matthew and those like him lived, you have to ask, who do ritually unclean people hang out with? And it's very simple, other ritually unclean people, right? Like other tax collectors or prostitutes, people from the red light district, thieves, subversive, all sorts of lawbreakers. You, not, you probably have noticed the phenomenon in Hollywood that, that famous people marry other famous people, right? You hardly ever see a famous person marry a non-famous person. So, and we have to ask, now, you know, wh- why is that? Now, is it because they're snooty, narcissistic, and exclusive? Probably. But it's other reasons, too. It's because, and, and this, is, this is true if you've ever really heard a, a celebrity be interviewed, celebrity is notoriously lonely. It's hard to be a normal person. You're, you're isolated by your fame and popularity, and you end up hanging out with other people who are in the same class. That's exactly the way it was with the tax collectors and those like them. Now, it says here in the text that Jesus has come back to his home base. He's come back to Capernaum. He's been on the east side doing miracles. He's now come back to the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And this was obviously, as we read the Gospels, this was also Matthew's home base. And Mark tells us that Matthew would set up his tax collector booth right by the Sea of Galilee so that he was sure to be able to hit any and all fishermen coming back up the way and to tax them on the fish they had caught. And you can imagine they loved Matthew for this, right? Well, Matthew had for this season had a front row seat to the ministry of Jesus. And you can imagine him just being sort of a detached observer. He's watching, he's observing, he's seeing what Jesus is doing. And you can imagine that Matthew probably 
during this season began to think about his own life. Who am I? What am I doing? And, and who is this Jesus person that seems to just draw in all sorts and types of people to him? And so when it says that Jesus issues a call to Matthew, the first thing we want to note is that Matthew follows immediately. And this isn't the primary point of the text, but let me just point this out. When Jesus calls someone, it's not just an offer. When Jesus calls someone, it's not, he's not just one answer on a multiple choice test. When Jesus calls someone, it is a command. And it is effectual. And Jesus' word accomplishes what he designs to accomplish. When he tells Lazarus to come out, Lazarus doesn't just stick his head out the tomb and say, hmm, let me think about that one, right? He comes. And when Jesus calls someone, his word accomplishes its purpose. And Matthew's heart heard the call. His heart was regenerated. It was effectual. And it says he immediately follows him. But that's only a small portion of this story. The emphasis is on what happens next. Apparently, Matthew decides that this is an opportunity for him to throw a banquet, a feast, a dinner, a party. And the people that he wants to invite to this party to be with Jesus and his disciples are the rest of the spiritual riffraff because he wants them to meet Jesus too. Again, not the main point of this text, but let me just, again, point this out to you. Good news is meant to be shared. I want you to think about the last time in your life when you had a piece of really good news, right? You found out that you were having a baby or that you were going to be a grandparent. Or, or maybe you had some sort of promotion or bonus or raise at work. Maybe you found out you were going on some sort of surprise trip or, or cruise. Maybe, Maybe you're a big sports fan and your team is riding high in that season. Maybe it's next Sunday after the FSU-LSU game and FSU wins. And what is the one thing you want to do when you see your buddies or your friends? You want to share it. You want to talk about it. You want to, you want to express it. That's the nature of good news. So let me just say something, church. If we're not sharing the good news of Jesus... Maybe, maybe we have lost touch at just how amazing this good news is. But Matthew has no such problem. Oftentimes, the newest Christians are the most effective witnesses because they know what it's like to be a non-Christian. The longer you're a Christian, the, the harder it is to remember what it was like in those days, right? So we have to be reminded, and Matthew's conversion reminds us of this. Now, let's go, let's go back to the main point of this, of, of this part of the story. When we compare Matthew's account of this party to what Luke says about this party and what uh, Mark says about this party, we're, we're, we notice there, there's, there, there's, a, there's, just a, there's a slight difference in the two, okay? Namely, what we find out from Mark and Luke is that this party actually took place at Matthew's house. And Matthew's house, because he's very wealthy, 
would have been well suited for a feast, a party, a banquet to invite all sorts of friends. But yet what we find out here in this account, Matthew leaves that part out. We have to ask why. Because let's face it, in our 21st century culture, culture, what a wonderful opportunity for a humble brag, right? I was hanging out, minding my own business, doing just fine. And guess what? Jesus chose me, chose me. And not only did he choose me, but he came and hung out at my house, my house. And I've got the selfie to prove it, right? And, and I'm going to platform this and I'm going to show you or really utilize Jesus to show you how awesome I am. That's oftentimes how modern testimonies can go, right? Look at what was happening for me here. Jesus gets involved, and now I'm great, and let's all celebrate that. Matthew totally gets it, right? Matthew understands this is not about me. This is not... I'm not the hero of this story, Jesus says. You may have heard about the security guard at the Taylor Swift concert. He, was, he got fired because he was having fans photograph him guarding Taylor Swift. Does anybody hear about this? Okay. Um, and, and just classic American narcissism, right? It's like, she clearly is the star of the stage. I'm pretty sure, buddy, you're not up there. No one's paying a ridiculous amount for the ticket to see you. But you want us to think that you're sort of the star here. And, and that's our impulse. That's our sin nature. But Matthew doesn't do that. It's almost like he doesn't want us to know. Like that that's an unimportant detail. That's going to, that's going to detract from the main point of the story Matthew wants to say, this is not just about what's happened to me, it's about what Jesus has done. See, by spotlighting Jesus and the kind of people that were drawn to him, I think Matthew is just drawing a singular lesson. It's important for us to get. It's clearly obvious, but we need to repeat it to ourselves. Nonetheless, anyone can be forgiven anyone. Matthew wants to say, even me, even my fellow riffraff, all the impure, all the unclean, everyone who doesn't want anything to do with us. And believe me, folks, there was plenty to be forgiven there, right? There, 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 there's, Jesus never says, right, they aren't so bad, right? They, Matthew's really a great guy if you get to know him and you can find your money that he stole from you. He's really a great guy. He doesn't say any of that. It just lets the story sit. And the idea is that Jesus, because of the, his unique power and authority, he alone can forgive sins. But here's the important point. He can forgive your sins, any of your sins for any Thing. Now, there, there are two application points I want to draw from this before we move on, okay? First, let me just ask you personally, do you really believe that? My, my sense in that working in pastoral ministry over the last two to three decades is that underneath 
so much of what we might call anxiety or depression or, or just real spiritual struggle is that at, if you want to just dig, dig, dig at the bottom of it, what you find oftentimes are people just wrestling with this fundamental question, can God really love me? Does, Pastor Paul, I know, I know what you say and I know what God's words say, but, but can, God, can God really forgive me? Like for all my sins, like every one of them? Because you don't know, Pastor Paul, where I've been, what I've done, my background. You, you've heard me say this before, church, that the most sinful person you know is who? Yourself. And oftentimes, see, we, we know ourselves better than anybody else does, even our own spouses if we're married. And, and, and when we're brutally honest with ourselves, we have to admit, I'm kind of messed up. I'm kind of broken and what everybody else knows is like half the story. And, and if everybody else really knew who I was, I mean, oh my goodness. And that sort of gets transferred over into our relationship with God. And let me just simply offer this sort of exhortation for us this morning, okay? When we say that we can't forgive ourselves, and I don't like that statement, it's, it's theologically twisted, but I know what you mean when you say it, okay? But if you're someone who says, I just don't think I can forgive myself, can I just gently push back on that and say, then you are holding yourself to a higher standard than God is. That is, that's not the gospel. The gospel is that anyone can be forgiven for anything. Now, second application point, and this one, this one probably might even be a little tougher for some of us. See, all of us have people in mind, and they, and they may not be the kind of people that are at Matthew's feast, okay? But they're, but, they're, but they're people, individuals, groups, political parties, movements, organizations, I don't know, whatever that represents for you, that, 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 that we think are beyond the scope of God's forgiveness. Or, and we don't say this part out loud, should be. Now, we don't say that, but that's oftentimes what's in our hearts. We oftentimes have a hard time thinking that there are certain people that just should not be allowed God's forgiveness. Of course, I'm not one of those, right? But, but you know, dictators, murderers, abusers, let's make it a little more personal, your abuser. These are, these are sort of the kind of people... God, that I just have a hard time thinking that you could forgive them. I can't forgive them. You can't forgive them, surely. That doesn't seem fair. I mean, I, I know that I'm kind of bad, but, but Jesus, these people are really bad. And can I just say, if, if, that's, if we're harboring that sort of thought and attitude, we're forgetting who we are. We're forgetting the nature of God's grace. We're forgetting the nature of our own sin. We are forgetting that we are just as much in need of the grace of God as the most wicked person we could ever imagine. Until you get that, until you can embrace that, you won't get grace.
And of course, this was the great stumbling block for the Pharisees. That leads us to our second point. So if the first point is anybody can be forgiven, the second, and this is, this is, what, this is what grips our heart here, everyone needs to be forgiven. Now, the, 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 the Pharisees reveal a little more than they know here in verse 11 when they ask the disciples, look back at the text, they, they say, and when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? In other words, why is, why is your teacher hanging out with the spiritual rifthaft? what's he doing with the undefiled? And this betrays something of their view of religion. And it goes like this. And by the way, it's not just ancient. This is very modern. This is, this is very prevalent in religious sorts of cultures like ours. And it goes, goes like this. The teacher, of course, or the rabbi, is the holy man. And he is a holy man because he does religious things. Right? He offers sacrifices, he tithes, he fasts, he, he orders his life around particular rituals and traditions. But on the other hand, you have all of these other folks, these tax collectors, these red light district workers, all these others, they don't do religious things. They don't tithe, they don't fast, they don't go to, go to the temple, they don't offer sacrifices. And because of this, that makes them unholy. So the person doing all the righteous things is holy. The person all who's doing the unrighteous things, they are unholy. And the idea was, as a holy man, as a rabbi, you don't go hang out with a riffraff, you might get contaminated as well. Right? You, you're, you, they're ceremonially unclean. If you go hang out with them, you're going to be ceremonially unclean. It's almost sin, it's almost like sin was treated like a disease that can sort of be caught by osmosis, right? By association. And Jesus indicates here, you're thinking about this all wrong. And I want you to notice what, what Jesus, a couple things Jesus doesn't say. Jesus doesn't say, by the way, at this point, and I mentioned this a second ago, that these folks really aren't that sinful, that, that it's okay to hang out with them because they really have a good heart. You know, it's kind of like the conversations you have with your teenager. You know, it, it, it's not a big deal, mom and dad. Not everyone was drinking, right? I, I closed my eyes at the bad part of the movie. Everybody else was watching it, but I was closing my eyes. Liar. And then I was, we were, we were speeding, but the people in my car were, were, riding, were, were wearing a seatbelt. You know, it's sort of this idea that by comparison, we're not that bad. Or even the folks that we're with are not that bad. Jesus doesn't even go there. He says, you're right. They're bad. They've done bad things. In fact, they're so bad, there might be what we would call sick sick with a disease, sick with a disease called sin, which means, if you look there at verse 12, but when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. If they're sick, Jesus is saying, they need a doctor. 
If they're sick, they need healing. That's why they're here. So I know we have a lot of fine medical professionals here that go to attend here at Four Oaks. But if I made an appointment with one of you to come in, you're going to make a very reasonable assumption that something is wrong. I mean, more than the normal things that are wrong, right? But you know what I mean, like there's something medically wrong. And I'm going to go into your office and you're going to sit down and say, well, tell me what's brought you here. What, what, what's, what's going on? What's happening? And I said, oh, oh, nothing. Nothing at all. I just wanted to come and hang out. Like, I, like, like here's a cup of Starbucks coffee. I just wanted to say thank you for your ministry. They, w- they would look at me like I lost my mind. They would say, don't you know you go to the doctor when you're sick? By the same token, if one of you medical professionals saw me, hadn't seen me for a while, and I had lost 40 pounds. No, I need to lose 20, but say I'll lose 40 and I'm covered in some sort of spots, use your imagination. And I look like I'm emaciated on death's door. And they say, you look awful. Why haven't you come and seen me? And then if I said, what do you mean? I'm great, that's awesome, life is good. Again, they would look at me like I'm crazy. Now, we get those examples, right? But Jesus says this medical example is actually a spiritual metaphor. It's a spiritual picture. Jesus is saying, if you're going, the people who come to see me are the ones who know they need forgiveness. So I want you to follow this logic. And this is just a rich point of this passage that I just hadn't fully seen before, but studying it this week. If it's true that Jesus is the only one who has authority to forgive sins, and he is, where is the best place for spiritually destitute people to be? With Jesus. With Jesus. And that's where they are. And really, the whole point of this passage is to ask a very provocative question, and it's simply this. Pharisees, why aren't you inside eating with Jesus too? That's the question. And the retort might be, why would I? Why would we? We have no need, and hence is the great paradox of this spiritual law. Those who receive grace... Or the, may put it, may put a little sharper point on it, the only ones who can receive grace and forgiveness are the ones who know they need it. And if your view of your life and of yourself is that your needs are about that big, itty bitty, then you will see an itty bitty need for a savior. But when God opens the eyes of your heart to see yourself as you truly are, like he did Matthew, you will run to the banquet. You will run to the feast. Now, this sounds a lot like, if you've been around church for a while, the very, very famous parable of the prodigal son. You know it well, most of you. There's two brothers. There's the dutiful, obedient older brother, obedient externally, and then you have the wild child. And the wild child, the younger son, Uh, I mean, he's no peach. He essentially says, Dad, 
I know I've got a big inheritance coming, but since you don't look like you're ready to die today, can you go ahead and give me my inheritance? And, and let's just kind of act like you've died. Can you imagine this? And death says, okay. And he gives him his inheritance. He goes into the foreign country. He squanders it on debaucherous living. He wakes up, comes to his senses in the pig pen, and says, what am I doing here? I'm going to crawl back on my hands and knees and beg my father to take me back, even if he'll just treat me as a servant. And remember the story. It's, it's like the son goes into that speech, and the, fair, and the father's just like, I don't want your speech. Kill the calf. I don't want your, your penance. I've got your heart. Let's throw the feast. The son is at home. He's lost. He's found. Grace, mercy, forgiveness. It's lavish, right? But not for the older son. What does the older son do? Let's read together. Luke 15. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. Matthew and his friends. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. First of all, be soft there, liar, right? Besides the judgmental, angry, self-righteous part. I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. The son didn't go to the feast because he didn't think he needed what the father was offering. The Pharisees are staying outside because they don't think they need what Jesus is offering. To which Jesus tells them, verse 13, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That, by the way, and Jesus knows his Old Testament, is a quote from Hosea 6.6. And, and the context for that is that the people of Israel are doing all the right things, quote-unquote, externally. They're going through the spiritual motions. They're offering their sacrifices. They're, they're doing their tithes, their offerings, their fasting, etc., etc. But their hearts are far from God. They are neglecting the needs around them. They, they actually have hardened hearts. And so listen to what Hosea 6.6 6 says. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Here's what he's telling them. Guys, Pharisees, you're, you're doing your fast, your rituals, your sacrifices. Out, outwardly, you're kind of conforming to the law. But here you have these people, these tax collectors, the riffraff, and they are broken right in front of your eyes. But yet, because of your self-righteousness, right, you cannot even see their need. Your hearts are so hardened to them in your self-righteousness that you can't see what I'm doing. You see, he's, say, he's saying the fact that you won't come into the feast 
is an indication of what's really going on in your heart. The fact that you disdain the tax collectors indicates that you have put yourself in a different category for them. And let me just ask you, where in your life might that be happening? Where, you know, Pastor, well, I, I know that I'm kind, I'm, I, I have faults. I, have, I struggle. I know I'm not perfect. But man, if you knew, fill in the blank. If you knew the other side of this equation, if you knew my spouse, you knew my friend, you knew my boss, you knew my child, you knew my, just fill in the blank, then, then you would totally get it. You would understand why I'm sitting here outside the feast. But here's the, here's the basic point. There's no grace and mercy and forgiveness if you don't come into the party with Jesus. That's, that's what's happening here. Forgiveness is available for everyone, everyone in this room. You just have to know that you need it. You just have to be able to humble yourself. This is what takes us all the way back to the Sermon on the Mount, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. They will see God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. One last thing I want to point out about this, and then we're, we're going to be done. When you read Mark and Luke's account of this, you'll notice that they don't refer to Matthew as Matthew. They refer to him as Levi. And Levi was probably Matthew's given Jewish name. And Matthew was part of his extended formal name. Matthew literally means Yahweh saves. We don't know this for sure, but this is just a, a, a speculation. I think there's a lot of merit to it. Do you know that oftentimes when Jesus would heal people or save people, he would also do what? He would change their name. Simon becomes Peter. On this rock, I will build my church. And it's if, it's, it's a, as if from this point forward, the church always knows Levi as Matthew because it's his new identity. It's because he was not the same person he once was, not because of how awesome he was, but by how la extravagant and lavish was the grace of God. But I, I want you to notice that in Matthew 10, as Matthew lists out all the apostles, how he refers to himself. And I think this is the gospel in a nutshell. Matthew says, refers to himself as Matthew the tax collector. And this is always a reminder to himself and to everyone else. I was lost, but now I've been found. I was a sinner, but Jesus has saved me. I was once a tax collector, that was my identity, but now I belong to Jesus, he has saved me. And now because Jesus is a friend to sinners, I go in to eat with him. You see, this meal is, is I mean, again, this is not just shoveling fast food into your mouth as fast as you can. A meal was intimacy, a meal was fellowship, a meal was relationship. And the fact that he is now 
bringing Matthew and the richly undefiled is saying, now we have unhindered fellowship with one another. You have forgiveness of your sins. And that's what we reenact every Sunday here at Four Oaks when we come to the table. This is not a ritual, a tradition. This is an opportunity for sinners like Matthew to feast together at the banquet table of Jesus Christ, to receive his mercy and grace and to remind ourselves of that mercy and grace. For Oaks, anyone can be forgiven. You just have to know that you need it. Let me ask you to bow your heads, spend just a moment or two asking God to prepare your hearts as we get ready to come to the table. I'm going to ask our leaders to come forward and prepare to serve the elements.